Well, it's a happy day. It's a happy day for Ironworks Church to have these officers, um, this ordination of these two men. And, you know, I think it's a good time for us to reflect on what goes into the call. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we uh, open the word together. And I thought it would be appropriate to go back to a time when another leader was called to reflect on this. I think it would be instructive to go back to that day. And one of the apostles, actually the last of the apostles, was called by none other than Jesus Christ himself. So that was a call issued not by the body of Christ, but by Christ himself. So we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at it in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. And we recognize, and I want you to think about this this morning, the author is Matthew, the tax collector. So please stand with me as we hear this read, Matthew's call in the gospel you. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Autumn. So there it is. There's the call, as I said, of the last one who was called, who became an apostle. It's, it's kind of a different story than the other calls of the apostles. It's different in a number of ways. Matthew possibly could have been uh, older than the other apostles, who are likely in their 20s. Uh, but Matthew's probably older. It's different in that way. He's different from the rest of the apostles, but especially um, you probably realize that he's different because he's a tax collector. Uh, operating in Capernaum, there uh, probably in Galilee, there wasn't kind of Roman taxation at that time. So this is probably Herod Antipas, who's collecting taxes from the population. Uh, just on the border there, maybe as people come over from the territory of Herod Philip, which is just on the other side of the Jordan River there, the north of the Sea of Galilee. So they come across here, Maybe they're getting taxed in that way. But uh, tax collectors were not uh, good news. Uh, they were not looked well upon. Um, it was exorbitant, the taxes that uh, people paid at that time. If you were tithing and paying tax, you were saying goodbye to some 30 to 40% of your income. It was exorbitant on the people. It was a burden upon them. And in addition to that, it was kind of a shady business. Tax collectors were known to overcollect to feather their own nest, you know, if you're in that business, you're in it to earn money. Um, and uh, Matthew in this position would be pretty far along. That's why I say he, he, he might have been older uh, than the others. And he was uh, in this shady business. Everybody knew it was shady. You can tell, you know, at, a one, at one point a group of tax collectors come to John the Baptist. You know, and different groups came to John the Baptist and were saying, yeah, we're convicted. We want to follow God. And so the tax collectors came 
And they said to John the Baptist, how do we follow God? What should we do? And John's one instruction was to don't overcharge. That's what John says to the tax collectors, because that was the temptation that, that uh, would be there for tax collectors to, to kind of feather their own nest and, and you know, skim, skim off the top uh, to, to, uh, to, do, uh, to get that extra money. So it's a shady business. And you can see it, actually, in the way that the, the gospel writers, even in this passage in verse 11, you notice what the Pharisees say. He's, Jesus, they're, they're disdaining Jesus because he's eating. And look at the pairing that goes on there with tax collectors and sinners. You hear that phrase? Tax collectors and sinners. As if, you know, they're in the same category, basically. You have these sinners and you have tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners. And so you see that the Pharisees using that term. But it's not just the Pharisees. Actually, you go through the Gospels. All the Gospel writers tend to use that phrase, you know, tax collectors and sinners, as if, you know, they go together in the gospel writer's mind. But, you know, it's not just the Pharisees, not even just the gospel writers. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus put them together as well. Jesus says, you know, if you just give to people who give back to you, you're really no better than a tax collector, as if, there you go, you know, arguments settled. Nobody wanted to be a tax collector. So, you know, this is not only the gospel writers, it's Jesus himself who seems to disdain tax collectors, you know. Obviously, bad news. This is like scum to them. So how do the other apostles feel about Jesus calling this one? And how would that make Matthew feel to immediately step into a place where he knew there was going to be antipathy. How would that feel to Matthew? Because as, as many of you have learned, when Jesus calls you to follow him, you're not just stepping into Jesus's life. You're not just interacting with Jesus. You're, you're called to walk with all those who Jesus also calls uh, to follow him. You're all of a sudden with all these other people that you didn't choose uh, to be with, Right? That's part of the deal when Jesus calls you. And so you, you have this situation that's very difficult for Matthew. How, how did he do this? That's what I want to ask us this morning. How did he leave his community that would, would be his support and step into this whole new situation, not only reversing his life, but stepping into a, a situation that would probably be not very welcoming for him? And yet he does it. Uh, if we reflect on verse 9 there, we have, to, we have to conclude there's something that went on before this call. Because you look at that in a moment in verse 9. In a moment, he changes his, his life priorities. Right? He changes his whole direction. All that he worked for, all that he achieved, he gets up and walks away from it. And it's not like he left the place unguarded. These tax collectors would work together. So it's not like he was leaving the, you know, the business in a lurch or anything. Uh, but he was himself stepping away from all that he had built up there uh, as, he was, as he was stepping away. What, let him, what made him do that? It's really verse 9 kind of downplays his, his sacrifice. Um, if you read this in, in the Gospel of Luke, this account, you, you can tell it's, it's more emphasized because Luke says, he, and when it gets to that verse 9, it says, 
He left everything. Tell us he left everything. So in Matthew's gospel, again, this is Matthew about himself here. It's downplayed. And this is typical among the gospel writers. They will downplay their own sacrifice uh, and what's going on with them. And so we don't see it quite as much in this passage, but he really was leaving everything. What, what, what had to go on inside of him for that to happen? Was there prior experience with Jesus? Well, this is still early in the Galilean ministry, this, this item, this event, but it is after Jesus has been ministering for a little bit in Galilee. He's done also a number of things. He's had a number of discourses here uh, that Matthew could have attended or he could have heard secondhand. There was a healing of a paralytic. There's healing of a leper. There was, um, you know, a casting out of a demon, all these striking events. Maybe Matthew witnessed, maybe he heard about. Probably, I think we should say there's, there's prior experience with Jesus. Um, we might look and say, oh, it was just the power of Jesus' presence, his personal presence there. If he says, come, you know, you're just going to come. I don't know if that we can say it's, it's, it's all that, you know. I'm sure that uh, there was something there, maybe that Matthew... Uh, admired in Jesus, the, the goodness that he saw in Jesus. Maybe he was in awe that Jesus would, would call him someone like him. But there's got to be something more. And we have to realize this, that, that God had been preparing his heart, just as we heard a little bit of the backstory of these men who are stepping into this office this morning. Um, God has been working a long time in Matthew to bring, bring him to this point. How had he been preparing his heart some way? Was he now disillusioned with his life? Had he come to dis despise what he, had been, what he was doing um, with the collecting taxes from his fellow Jews? Had he been longing for a change in his life? It's got to be something. I just want you to realize there's a backstory here. There's a backstory that God has been working to prepare Matthew, just as he prepared Jim and Paul for this moment this morning. You know, I was speaking uh, this week with a woman about, just this week, about the, 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 the salvation that is in Jesus Christ and trying to explain to her how it is that Christ comes and, and saves us as we respond to him. And uh, she was very attentive to what I was saying. I remember talking with the same woman actually a few years ago, and uh, she, this was different. I saw a difference in her eyes. And she was telling me that uh, she had been reading uh, the book of Genesis. And she had read it seven times. She had read through the book of Genesis seven times. And each time, she was getting angrier and angrier at God. She was getting more and more angry. She would read Genesis, get angry. She would read it again, get more angry. And I said, you know, that's terrific. <laughs> and she said, What? What, what do you mean? It's terrific. I'm reading the Bible, getting angry at God. I said, yes, it's terrific because it means at last you are engaging with God. And that's what it's about. That's what it's about. She was puzzled. She said, you know, when I look at Christianity, it seems to me that Christianity is, is praying and then reading disturbing stories in the Bible. Is that what it's about? And I said, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> And a few other things, I said. 
But uh, she was ready. I, I was just really hopeful for her because of what I was seeing, engage, how she was engaging with the scriptures, engaging with the Lord. What made the difference between her a few years ago and where she was this week? It was a backstory. It was things that had happened in her life that made her ready to engage. This is the way it was with Matthew. This is the way it is with Jim and with Paul this morning. There's a backstory. So what went into this? And I want to bring out just what we can see in this passage. Two things that someone needs to be a leader in a church. Two things that the called leader must know in their lives. And this is, this is mainly for Paul and for, uh, for Jim as well. I'm speaking and charging them. But, but for you also as you evaluate leaders uh, in the church. And I would say it's pretty clear in this passage, there are two things, and from what I've seen, absolutely necessary for a leader in God's church. Two things. Number one, and it's there in verses 12 through 13, the must know Christ's mercy to him. The called must know Christ's mercy to him. And we could see, you know, as we read verse 12, that great line, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick, right? We, very memorable line. And then we're kind of repeated because that's really a, a, an analogy. It's, it's Jesus has said, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And, you know, when he says that, he means he's not saying, oh, well, there are the righteous and then there are the sinners. He's, he's saying those who recognize that they're sinners, those are the ones I've come to call. Those who can see that they're sinners, those are the ones who are going to be able to respond to me. In the same way, you know, those who can recognize that they're sick, those are the ones uh, that are going to go to the doctor. Those are the ones who are going to get a doctor's help, right? And I, I read this verse, I can't help but think of my wife. Um, my darling, you know, she's very health-focused. So when there's a health issue, she's, you know, she furrows her brow and she reads and she investigates to find out what's going on. And she does this with herself, too, to the point where she feels like she knows what's going on and she can diagnose herself. And so this scene kind of plays, it's played out again and again in our marriage, where she's going through something she had, it was just happened again recently, where she was uh, sick with something and she kind of really dug down to understand what it was. She said, okay, I, I know what this is, I know what I need to do. And I said, honey, why don't you just call a doctor? You know, it's kind of easy these days. You, your health, health coverage allows you like a Zoom meeting, right? You can get a doctor by a Zoom. You just have a consultation. You can even do that in, on Amazon, uh, I think, now. So why don't you just call a doctor? And, and this is what she says. She says, oh, yeah, but if I call the doctor, he or she is just going to say, you know, do this, do this, and I go to the pharmacy and do this. And I say, well, maybe. I said, Mary Kay, you know, you're a very smart person but you're not a doctor. So why don't you just call a doctor? She says, no, no, I know the doctor's going to say blah, 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 blah. Well, it kept going on. So finally, you know, I convinced her she calls the doctor. And then she comes back to me and says, you know what the doctor said? She, he said this, and I wasn't expecting that. And then I'm very tempted to quote verse 12 uh, to her. Very tempted. <laughs> To say, you know, it's not, the, it's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. 
about. It's those who recognize that they need a doctor, that get the doctor's help. Those who can see it. And that's what's going on here. You see it in verse 13. I've come to call sinners. You notice Jesus is saying, I've come to call sinners. Well, who's he talking to? Who's he referring to? Who did he just call? It's Matthew. So you say, Jesus calls Matthew and then says, verse 13, I have come to call sinners. But let's think again. Who's telling us this story? Who's the one writing this down? Whose account is this? It's Matthew. It's Matthew calling, calling this forward for us. It's Matthew recalling this. It's Matthew who's telling us he's a sinner. In fact, you see that phrase, Look at verse 10. Uh, who's using the phrase tax collectors and sinners? So it's not just the gospel, right? It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just Jesus himself. It's the tax collector using that phrase in verse 10. It's the tax collector saying tax collectors and sinners. You know, those type of people. So you see, you see what's going on here. Matthew, is, Matthew knows he needs the mercy of Christ. And that is what made him a leader. That is what enabled him to become the called and called into the leadership because he knew Christ's mercy to him. You know, I was, um, remember I was pastoring, pastoring a church in uh, New York City and I had an elder there. Uh, his name was Mako Fujimura and he was uh, serving on the session there. And I remember having a conversation with uh, Mako, myself, and this other man who was uh, talking about something and we were in the middle of this conversation and I was listening and he was he was saying to us this guy you know he was looking at the culture he was looking at what things that people were doing he was like these people they're they're just so awful and you know they they deny God and look at all that they're doing and it's just awful the things that they're doing and I remember um, Mako said yeah his reply was you know you're right I agree with you and what's more, you know, I see this in myself. I notice that I have the same tendency to do this kind of thing. Maybe not in the same way, but I see this same thing in myself. And I'll tell you, it just changed the whole conversation. It took the air out of this guy. He was like a mid-sentence. Oh, yeah. And then he was like, yeah, okay, yeah. And this was, what was this? This was just an elder in the church expressing the need for Christ's mercy himself. Changed the whole conversation. And so we went on for a few minutes like that, thought, talking that way. It's like, yeah, I, I kind of see this in myself. And that went on for a few minutes. And then the guy got back on his rail. And he was like, yeah, but these folks, they're terrible. These folks, you know, they don't pay attention to what the Bible says. They're kind of wrecking things and all the things that they're doing. And he was like getting up there again. And I saw Maka did it again. He said, yeah, you know, you're right. I see that, and I also, I see that in myself, too. I do that this way. You know, this comes out in me this way. And again, you know, brought the conversation back to a different level. And I was just standing there kind of watching this conversation between the two of them saying, there's a leader. There's somebody who knows and needs the mercy of Christ to himself. That's number one. Number two Second thing that the called leader needs to know, and this is, this is probably going to surprise you, but it's true. The second thing the called leader must know is Christ's confidence in him. 
must know Christ's mercy to him, but he also must know Christ's confidence in him. And we can see this here. You know, Matthew became instrumental in the progress of the kingdom of heaven, in the establishment of the kingdom of heaven through the early church on earth. Matthew was instrumental in that. And you look at what God used in his life. um, It's beautiful, you know, because as a tax collector, he would be fluent in Aramaic. He would be fluent in Greek. He would uh, have these different language skills. And God used that uh, chief evidence of it, the gospel itself, in writing this gospel. So God took Matthew and the skills that he had in his life, and he used him in that ministry. But it's not just that. It's not just the kind of uh, scribal skills that Matthew has. It's interesting. There's another part in the gospel where only in this gospel he mentions how a scribe comes into the kingdom and is really beneficial because he brings old things and new, something that Matthew cites for us. But, but it's not just these types of things. It's Matthew's sensibilities and his, his remembrance, his recalling of the Old Testament and, and precious scriptures. In fact, just even in this passage, we have verse 13. You know, it's because of Matthew, we have verse 13, this quotation from the prophet Hosea, which we also printed in your bulletin there if you want to read the whole passage that, that Matthew is recalling Jesus quoting from. Hosea is a great prophetic book, by the way, for a church to go through, if a church were looking for a book to go through, by the way. But Matthew is the one who remembers, who remembers it. Matthew is the one who quotes it. In this account, this uh, part of the story of the gospel, um, Mark doesn't recall it. Luke doesn't recall it. But Matthew does. That I require, says the Lord, mercy and not sacrifice. That I want acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That's Matthew remembering, recalling how Jesus said that. So actually, that quotation comes up again in Matthew's gospel, that kind of important truth. This is something Matthew brings out. Again, he, uh, because it comes up again, he recalls it in Matthew chapter 12. So you can kind of look at, at some, uh, it gives us some insight into what Jesus was seeing when he looked at Matthew. Jesus called Matthew because he wanted Matthew Matthew specifically, because of the testimony that he was building in Matthew's life, so also with these officers. And this is something that you two have got to know. Christ's confidence in you, that he's called you, and he's called you to this position now because he wants you. It could very well be that God likes playing golf or God likes verbal puns. I don't know. It's possible. Apparently, it's so. That God likes that kind of thing. (laughs) It must be. And he has you for what you are bringing. And this kind of confidence, you have to know. In church, you have to make sure they know it. I had um, another situation with a session. One time, I was pastoring a church. And there was a momentous decision that was coming before the session that they had to decide. Very important decision. I had actually 
a big import for me. And there was one elder who, who uh, came to me and said, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I can make this. This, this, is, this is too important a decision. I don't think I'm up for it. I'm not smart enough to make this decision. I'm not equipped enough. I'm, I don't feel like I'm able to do this. I, I'll never forget that I looked at him and I said, let me tell you, you are Esther. You are Esther at this time. You are the man for this hour. And God has specifically chosen you to be in this position to make this decision. And he had to know that. He had to know the called leaders, confidence uh, that, that Christ had in him. Had to know that. This is not, you know, the message of Disney. You know, that demonic message of Disney gives the kids over and over, believe in yourself, believe in yourself, you know? This is not Disney. This is not believe in yourself. This is believe in the one who has confidence in you. That's what this is. And you know what? When, when, when leaders grasp this, actually any of us grasp this, God can really use, the, use you. When you know both, both God's mercy to you and you know Christ's confidence in you, he, then, you are, then you're dangerous. Then you're dangerous for the kingdom. You know, it's happened recently. It's, uh, it's neat that kind of Barb, Barbara Hart came up this morning and uh, obviously very important in this backstory. Uh, one of these backstories, well, she, Barbara, and Mary Kay were recently at a cafe. Now, these are not people with great overbearing presences. You know, these are not like scary individuals. You know, these two women, if you know Barbara and Mary Kay, you know, neither of them are people who are like, okay, like they come in, you're like, okay, I got to reckon with this person. Um, and they're sitting there, and while they're sitting in their cafe, they're accosted by a drunken man. Okay? A drunken man just comes up to them and uh, starts kind of getting in, in their faces. And um, you're like, what are these two women, these unassuming women, what are they going to do? Well, what they did was started talking to him about the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. They were, they were bringing the gospel to him as he was coming into them. And that's what it turned out to be. It turned out to be a session of talking about what was available in Christ for him. These two women, why? What did you have there? You had confident sinners. That's what Christ will use. Confident sinners sitting there in this cafe with this man. Greatly used by God. So these are the two things that these leaders need. We need to recognize and encourage them as well. And finally, friends, the reward for responding to the call we find in the middle two verses, in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, the reward for the called is you get Jesus in your house. You notice that in verse 10, immediately after the call, all of a sudden, they're in a house. How did they get there? Was it nearby the tax office? I don't know. It is Matthew's house, we know, from Luke. And you can tell in this passage because of who's there. All of these tax collectors are there in Matthew's house. So what we see is that somehow Matthew's world and Jesus Christ's world have, have been combined, have come together. Jesus has stepped into Matthew's world. 
And this is a way that Jesus does. He stands at the door and knocks. And knocks. If somebody responds to them, he steps into their world with them. And he eats with them and they with him. And this is what brings, verse 11, the scowl from the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, they just, their emphasis was on pure table fellowship. They're, if you were going to have someone at, have, have table fellowship with you, they needed to be pure. They needed to be righteous. And so they look at what Jesus has. Jesus is having t- table fellowship with this tax collector and sinners. And they don't get it. So they immediately make themselves outsiders. Because they don't see what Jesus has done. They don't see what Matthew has done in receiving Jesus. They don't see what Jesus has done in stepping into his life. So they're on the outside scowling. But this is the reward for answering the call. Close fellowship with Jesus. This is what you men can expect in responding as you have to the call of the church. Is close fellowship with Jesus. This is really the only reason to be in ministry. only reason I stay in ministry um, there's not a good reason otherwise. But this is what we get. And for all of us, this is a symbol of what's coming, this great feast. You know, in verse 10, it says they're reclining. I love that because it was the custom of Jews to sit at their meals. So in verse 10, you know, it's something more than that. They would sit and, and eat at their meals. But reclining, verse 10, means... Um, it's some kind of feast. It's some kind of party. It's a festive gathering. And this is important because it's the second scene in this section of Matthew where you have a, a festive gathering, a feast with unexpected guests. It's an unexpected guest list. This happened, once, this happened at the beginning of this section just, just in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus heals uh, another Pharisee, uh, not a Pharisee, excuse me, a, a centurion's servant. And uh, there's, a, there's a banquet at the end of that, and he's again reclining, and he gives a teaching there. He says, you know, there's going to be this, this kind of feast at the end, and there are all different kinds of people that are going to be at it. They're going to come from the east, they're going to come from the west and north and south, these Gentiles, and they're going to be eating with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's he talking about? He's talking about this eschatological feast at the end to which all of the called are invited. If you are called, you are going to be reclining at this feast. And this is the promise to responding to those who respond to Christ's call, okay, who know the mercy of God and who know Christ's confidence in them. With this banquet at Matthew's house, Jesus is foreshadowing the great banquet. And you know, we're given a feast today as well here at our communion table. What we're doing when we come forward to celebrate communion, we are anticipating the one to come. And this feast, just like Matthew's, foreshadowing, uh, it's celebrating the victory of Jesus Christ's mercy to us and his confidence in us in his kingdom. And so Ironworks Church, let's do that now. Let, Let all of us who are called come and keep the feast. Please stand with me.